Just several days before Christmas in 1811, Mellish sat in the back of the Three Foxes pub, talking about the recent murders, as was all of London. He was about to make a comment to a friend about the crimes when they heard the unmistakable clatter of the watchman's rattle, followed by pleas for someone to stop the murderers. Courageous Mellish ran from the pub to help, his feet carrying him out to the intersection where he spotted three shady-looking characters, all fleeing the scene. Mellish figured the men must be the fiends who had terrorized London the past several weeks and took chase after them. Mellish shouted at the men to stop, saying, You are the villains and I shall have at you, apparently forgetting or not caring that the odds were against him three to one. Armed with a poker from the Three Foxes pub, Mellish rammed it into the head of the smallest of the three, but this only stunned the man, who got to his feet and shot his pistol into Mellish's face. Mellish did not die immediately. Neighbors carried him, blinded and disfigured, back into the pub in critical condition. The rest of Mellish's fate is lost to history. We do not know if the brave young man lost his life shortly after, or if he lived to hear that the men he sought were not, after all, the Ratcliffe Highway murderers. We do not know if Mellish ever came to realize that he was just another victim of the panic that beset London in the winter of 1811, when a killer or killers made residents question just how safe they truly were inside their own homes. There was a killer on the loose, and he had already claimed seven innocent lives. I'm your host, Elise, and this is Old Blood, the historical true crime podcast. Timothy Marr's linen shop resided at 29 Ratcliffe Highway in East London. The highway had been around since Roman times, running east from the Tower of London to the dockyards and the commercial and residential neighborhoods that grew up around them to serve the heavy influx of seamen. By 1598, Ratcliffe Highway was already well-established as a haunted, seedy place, that catered to the lower rungs of society, and was described as, quote, a filthy straight passage with alleys of small tenements inhabited by sailors' victuallers, end quote. The fact that Ratcliffe Highway ran right by where pirates and criminals were once executed did not do much to dispel the myth that the place was haunted. And then, in 1794, a fire raised most of the wooden shacks erected upon the highway, so there were sections of the road that had been rebuilt in respectable brick-and-mortar houses. So, for a short time at the end of the 18th century, portions of the Ratcliffe Highway were a decent place for a working-class family to work and live. Timothy Marr owned one of these brick buildings along Ratcliffe Highway, adjacent to the London dockyards. Marr himself was once a sailor with the East India Company, 
In fact, he was a personal servant to the ship captain whose daughter he was in love with. He managed to make an agreement with the captain to settle down and marry his daughter when Mar returned to dry land. Timothy Marr married Celia in April of 1811 and set up shop on 29 Ratcliffe Highway. The Mars had only been in business several months by the winter. Their son, also named Timothy, was born in August amid construction to the shop. The entire storefront had been taken down to install a larger window, along with other minor updates to the shop and its layout. The Mars were by no means rich, but they were doing well for themselves, and his business became, already, a respectable one. Saturdays were always the busiest night for shops along Ratcliffe Highway, so shops stayed open late. Although the Mars store was open from 8 a.m. until 10 or 11 at night, it would still take several hours to tidy up and put everything away, so Marr and his employees expected to still be at work well past midnight. This Saturday, December 7th, was no different. And at 11.50, Timothy Marr gave his servant girl some money and asked her to run some errands on his behalf. Margaret Jewell took the pound note Marr gave her and walked out of the shop, leaving behind Marr and the shop boy James Gowan, along with Celia Marr, who was feeding their infant child downstairs in the cellar. Marr requested oysters for dinner since he knew his wife enjoyed them and was still recovering from giving birth and being confined at home. Yet, given the late hour, Margaret Jewell arrived to find the oyster store closed, so she began walking back to the shop. She had to double back and pass the Marr store on her way to go pay the baker's bill, and when she did, she peered inside the window to see Marr still hard at work. It was midnight then, and she kept walking until she reached the baker's shop, only to find the door shut, so she decided to try one more place to see if they had oysters for the Mars. It was too late, and the other shop was closed too, so she returned to 29 Ratcliffe Highway, no more than 20 minutes after first leaving it. Upon her return, she approached to find the lights were out and the door locked, so she began ringing the bell. Perhaps Mar closed up and was already upstairs asleep? But that didn't make sense because Mar knew to expect her back, so she pulled the bell again. And still, nothing. Not even the shop boy James Gowan was inside where she left him. Had he gone home too? She was getting irritated now. It was late and she was on a spooky highway by herself. Why would they lock the door? She rang a third time and, finally, she heard the sounds of footsteps inside on the staircase. Finally, Mar heard the bell and was running down the stairs to usher her in, Margaret thought. But Mar never appeared, and a moment later she heard the baby release a low wail and then was silent. Now, afraid and cold, Margaret rang the bell again. This time, an angry drunk appeared on the street and began harassing her for making so much racket when he was trying to sleep. But Margaret had nowhere else to go, so she stood silently by the door and hoped that a watchman would cross by on patrol soon. Watchman George Olney was the next to pass by the Mar shop. 
only was calling the hour, as he did every thirty minutes to let citizens know the time, and it was one a.m. when he crossed Margaret Jewell, waiting outside the Mars shop. He agreed with her that the situation was strange. When he passed at midnight, Marr had put out his shutters but hadn't yet fastened them, so he yelled into the store to remind Marr to fasten his windows. A voice from inside that he didn't recognize responded, saying, We know of it. Now, at 1 a.m., Marr's shutters were still not latched and something was amiss. Only rang and pounded on the door, even stooping down to yell through the keyhole that Marr should come fasten his shutters. Nothing. Except for John Murray, Mar's neighbor, whose peace had been disturbed ever since Margaret first began ringing the bell. He and his wife were getting ready for bed around midnight when they began to hear noises from next door. Sounds of a chair being pushed back, followed by a cry either from a woman or a young boy. But such sounds were common and quickly ignored until Watchman Olney's banging summoned him outside to see what the hell was going on. Murray told Olney to keep knocking while he went around to see if he could enter Mar's back door. He went in through his house and out the back door and over the fence that divided his yard from the Mars. The first thing he noticed was that the back door was open. He walked in, noticing that a candle had been lit on the first floor landing, so he grabbed the candle on the way up to where the bedrooms were. He couldn't help the feeling that he was intruding on this family's privacy, and already felt embarrassed that Mar would find him sneaking in and chastise him for it. But the house was deadly silent without the sound of snores and breath that told him someone was sleeping. Mar. Mar, John Murray called out to him through the bedroom door. Your window shutters are not fastened. When he received no reply, Murray likely felt dumb at his trivial concern when there was clearly something much more momentous that had occurred. Murray retraced his steps back down the stairs. James Gowan's body lay just inside the shop. But Murray did not notice his body so much as he stood in awe of the amount of blood that covered the interior. Blood seeping from the body onto the floor, blood sprayed onto the counters and even flung onto the low ceiling. The candle shook in his hand as Murray shuffled to the door, nearly tripping over the second body. It was Celia Marr, face down in a puddle of her own blood. Murray flung open the door leading to the street. Murder! Murder! he cried for the neighborhood to hear. Come and see what murder is here! Only and a second passing watchman were outside with Margaret Jewell, and they all rushed inside to see for themselves, followed by others who flocked to the scene. Margaret had not been inside the shop long when she unleashed a blood-curdling scream. The man ran to where her eyesight was directed, behind the shop counter, to Timothy Marr, face down, his head pulverized. With horror, someone inside the shop realized the Mars had a baby. The child! Where's the child? The little crowd dispersed, searching for him. They found him in the basement, still in his cradle. The child's head was bashed in, and his throat was slit. 
and among this masterpiece of blood and brains strewn about the shop in an ungodly work of bloody abstract art was a chisel, a ripping chisel like that used by a carpenter, which, under any other circumstance, would have been overlooked, if not for the fact that it remained the one thing on the shop counter that was not steeped in blood. The crowd outside grew and people filed into the shop to look at the carnage, as watchman's rattles rang out in the night and Officer Charles Horton of the River Thames Police Office arrived at the scene. He hoped to search the premises and find a clue to point him to the killers, but was only more confused by the clues he found. So far as he could tell, nothing had been stolen. There were still five pounds in Mars' pocket and some money left in the till. Upstairs in the master bedroom, he found a hundred and fifty-two pounds. If this were a burglary, why did they not take the money? And if this was not about the money, then what the hell was going on? None of the bodies were found upstairs where the bedrooms were, and were neighbor John Murray to have actually gone inside the Mars bedroom, he would not have found anyone there. But when Officer Horton searched the room, he found the most important clue sitting on the floor, propped up against a chair by the bedside. It was a heavy iron mallet, or, to be more specific, a carpenter's maul. It looked like a mallet or one of those block hammers, but with one end sharpened to a point. Ship carpenters use these to hammer in nails, and then use the pointed end to further hammer the nail beneath the wood surface. But this one had been used in the murder of four people, including a child, and was matted in blood, hair, and brain matter. The tip, they noticed, had been broken off, damaged somehow. The other clue of significance that Officer Horton found was outside Mars' back door. Sets of footprints leading away from the building and over a fence that led to the London Dock Company. There was no police force in 1811 London to investigate the murders. The Metropolitan Police would be established in 1829, but by the time of the Ratcliffe Highway murders, there was no one force to turn to for help. When Jack the Ripper prowled the streets nearly eight decades later, there was a police force of 14,000 working to find him. In 1811, the Ratcliffe Highway had 35 mostly elderly watchmen, 24 night patrols, and three magistrates, each with eight officers of their own. The author P.D. James worked with historian T.A. Kreitchley to write a book on this case called The Mall and the Pear Tree, which is the main source for this episode. In it, James and Kreitchley explain how corrupt and ineffective these night watches were and how people had to be conscripted to be constable then because it was such a thankless job. There was, however, the River Thames Police Force, established only 11 years earlier. They were mostly confined to the river as their purpose was to protect cargo and ships, but after the murders at Mars Linen Shop, the magistrate in charge of the River Thames Police Force, John Harriet, 
took on the responsibility of investigating. Violence was common in 1811 London, but not the kind witnessed at Mars Linen Shop. This was the wholesale slaughter of an entire family, including an infant. One could be expected to witness violence on the docks or in the streets, but in one's own home? If a person wasn't safe in their own homes, then no one was safe at all. This was unnerving to Londoners on a whole different level. But England did not yet know how to handle such an atrocity. They did not yet have the resources or manpower. Everyone was always confused about whose responsibility was what, and one group rarely bothered to compare notes with the other. The Home Secretary, Richard Ryder, would later become more involved in the case, but in the meantime the responsibility fell mostly to the magistrates appointed by him. It would be some time before public pressure forced these magistrates and Secretary Ryder into more active positions. Officer Harriet of the River Thames Police Force wrote to the Home Office, hoping for some support, and then printed a handbill with a description of the suspects and offered a £20 reward. This would later be increased to 50 Harriet wrote that from the evidence at the crime scene, it is pretty evident that at least two persons were concerned with the murders. He theorized that the killers likely waited for the busiest night of the week, the night shop owners had the most money on hand to strike. They probably waited outside Mars' shop for him to put up his shutters, at which point they snuck in through the front door and, after the murders, fled out the back. This was confirmed by reports of three men seen loitering outside the store earlier that evening. Authorities kept the Mars and James Gowan inside the home until the funeral, with Timothy, Celia, and their infant laid out in the upstairs bedroom together. There was an officer on guard at all times, but this simply meant he was somewhere in the house, as curious people from all over filed in to see the corpses and crime scene. The inquest was held on a Tuesday, three days after the murders at a nearby public house named the Jolly Sailor, as was the custom. Coroner John Unwin and the jury crossed the street to inspect the scene and the bodies. All four were bludgeoned, and all four had their throats slit. The jury rendered a verdict that they had been killed by a person or persons unknown. And the theories began. Apparently, Celia Marr had a servant by the name of Wilkie, who was fired on suspicion of dishonesty and allegedly had a verbal altercation with Celia in which she threatened to kill her. But then the two had made up, and the servant was seen visiting the Mars amicably afterward. Wilkie had since taken up prostitution, which concerned Celia, who told her that she would take her back if Wilkie ceased sinning and changed her ways. Timothy's brother was also suspected, since it was rumored the two had a falling out and hadn't spoken in years. The brother was interrogated for 48 hours and then let go. He had been in a different city at the time of the murders. 
Also under suspicion was Mr. Pugh, the carpenter who helped to renovate Mars' shop. Pugh had hired a man named Cornelius Hart to work on the shop's windows. Pugh borrowed a chisel from one of Mars' neighbors so that Hart could complete the work to the windows, but then the chisel vanished. When Pugh asked Hart, he said the chisel must still be at the Mar shop, for he didn't have it, but Timothy Marr had looked everywhere for it and said it wasn't there. The next time anyone saw it was when it laid on the shop counter, squeaky clean amidst the backdrop of blood and gore. Officer Harriet surmised that the killer must have been the one to bring the chisel into the shop. Either that, or Marr miraculously found it just before being killed. And yet, both Pugh and Hart had alibis for the murder, and were dismissed, as was Celia's servant Wilkie and Marr's brother. And then there was the plethora of drunkards and crazies who claimed to have intimate knowledge of the killer, simply because they wanted the fame of being involved in the case that all of London was talking about. Authorities were on the lookout for the men seen loitering outside the shop that night, and were also seeking bloody clothing, knowing that the killer would have been covered in blood after the crimes. One man, Thomas Knight, was arrested for having a bloody smock and disappearing without notice, but then it was learned that he had an alibi and only left without notice because he owed some money. Knight was one of many to be accused of the murder, simply for having an article of bloody clothing. But the problem was that blood was so commonly smeared across clothing then, since so many people worked with dead fish and animals and got into drunken brawls at the pubs. Ultimately, the magistrates realized that the murderer would have a lot more blood on his clothes than just a collar with bloody fingerprints. This was a lot of blood they were talking about. Celia's mother and sister were already on their way to 29 Ratcliffe Highway to visit her when they were all murdered, and thus arrived to the dreadful news rather than a reunion. The funeral was held on Sunday, a week after their deaths, and they were buried at the cemetery outside of the Church of St. George's in the East. The gravestone listed their names and ages, along with a short poem. Stop, mortal, stop as you pass by, and view the grave wherein doth lie a father, mother, and a son, whose earthly course was shortly run. For lo, all in one fatal hour, o'ercame were they with ruthless power, and murdered in a cruel state, yea, far too horrid to relate. They spared not one to tell the tale, one for the other could not wail. The lovers' fate in anguish sighed, loving they lived, together died. Reflect, O reader, o'er their fate, and turn from sin before too late. Life is uncertain in this world, oft in a moment we are hurled, to endless bliss or endless pain, so let not sin within you reign. It was not until Thursday the 19th, twelve days after the murders, that
that someone bothered to re-examine the bloody mall found by Mar's bedside. It's unclear why it took so long to do so and who made the discovery, but someone finally took a handkerchief to the end covered with blood, hair, and brains to clean it off, and when they did, they found initials punched in dots on one end. It was marked either IP or JP, and now those investigating at least had that clue to unravel and began inquiring after anyone with tools and the same initials with ties to the Mars. But the murder was an odd one, for several reasons. One of the Bow Street magistrates, Aaron Graham, joined in on the efforts to provide answers, but only came away with questions. To Graham, the entire evening was suspicious from the get-go. Why had Mar sent Margaret Jewell out so late on what was surely a fool's errand? Surely he would have known that the shops would be closed when he sent her out so late, even on a Saturday night. And was it even Mar who sent her? It would have made much more sense for Celia to do so, seeing as meals were part of the woman's domain then. Margaret Jewell testified at the inquest that it was Mar who sent her, but the magistrates told the Home Secretary that it was Celia who had done so. Had the magistrates gotten it wrong? Or did Margaret Jewell tell both accounts? Magistrate Graham imagined scenarios in which the girl waited for a sign to leave the store, having been tipped off by the killer. Not that he had any evidence of this, it was just such a coincidence that the killer struck in the ten minutes between her walking past the Mars shop to the baker's and back. It was the luckiest ten minutes of her life. Others speculated that it was the work of a criminal gang after reports that around a dozen men were seen running from the direction of the murders just after it occurred. But there were plenty of criminals in London then, and they were not all murderers. One would not have to look too hard to find a dozen men who would run from the authorities, particularly around Ratcliffe Highway. One of the more popular theories was that Mars' past had somehow come back to haunt him. Perhaps one of his old sailor friends paid a visit to Mar to collect on a debt, or perhaps exact revenge for a wrong. If Mar was expecting a shady character from his past, it would have made sense for him to get Margaret out of the way by sending her on a fool's errand, assuming his family was safe upstairs. And, in that case, maybe he kept James Gowan with him instead of sending him as Margaret's escort, because he knew he might need another man around just in case. London was unnerved by the crime, and it was all anyone could talk about for that first week. Volunteers patrolled the streets, and everyone had their eyes and ears open, just in case there was another attack. But one week passed, and the Mars were buried, and by the twelfth night people resumed their daily lives. As had the Williamsons, who owned the King's Arms public house, over on New Gravel Lane. It was not on Ratcliffe Highway, but only a few minutes' walk from Mars' store, so the neighborhood was still on alert here, with watchmen patrolling the neighborhood more vigilantly. Unlike the Mars who were in their early twenties, 
Mr. and Mrs. Williamson were in their fifties and sixties. They lived in the same building as the pub, with their bedrooms just upstairs and their fifty-year-old servant Bridget Harrington in the room above that. She shared the top floor with young lodger John Turner. Williamson's fourteen-year-old granddaughter lived with them, too, in the room beside theirs. The King's Arms was a respectable place, and its owners were early risers, so they closed early evening at eleven, though still allowing close friends and neighbors the opportunity to drop by should they need something. Mr. Williamson was older, but still a strong man, built solidly enough to handle any drunken fight that may break out in his establishment. There was also a watch box just opposite his pub, and he often had visits from neighbors on all sides, so he was not too worried about his safety, even when a friend told him earlier in the day that a man was seen loitering outside, listening at his door. Samuel Phillips entered the King's Arms and told Williamson of, quote, a stout man with a very large coat on, end quote, who was peeping in, so Williamson grabbed a candle and went out to see what the man wanted, but found no one there. He went back inside and said so, then went back to his business. Mr. Lee, who owned the Blackpoor's hub directly across the street, was also there looking for his wife and daughter since it was getting late, but they weren't there, so he left. Samuel Phillips was leaving, just as the parish constable Mr. Anderson was entering. Mr. Anderson was a friend of his and lived two doors down, so they chatted for a bit. Williamson told Anderson he could head back, and that Bridget would bring the pot of beer over to him when she was finished. Anderson was about to leave when Williamson stopped him, telling him of the man seen loitering outside earlier with a brown jacket on. He told Anderson to either arrest the man or tell Williamson about it so he could confront him. I certainly will, Anderson replied, for my own safety as well as yours, and then left. Anderson walked two doors down to his home and downed his ale. After about twenty minutes, Anderson got up to walk over for a refill, but when Anderson opened his front door and walked out onto New Gravel Lane, he was greeted by pandemonium. Absolute panic on the streets as people ran past him towards the King's Arms. Anderson gazed over at the pub to see John Turner, the Williamson's lodger, repelling himself down the building hanging on to knotted bedsheets coming from the third-story bedroom. Murder! Murder! Turner cried, pale and half-naked as he dangled in the air above them all. A watchman stood below, cemented to the floor, staring up at Turner in shock. Anderson ran back inside and grabbed his constable's sword and staff, and rushed back out just in time to see Anderson fall, eight feet into the arms of a watchman. Anderson was joined by Mr. Lee of the pub across the street and several others as he went around to try and enter the cellar, seeing as the crowd at the front door was having a hard time breaking in. Anderson and Lee saw Mr. Williamson first, on the stairs that led down to the cellar. His head was facing downward, 
and he was on his back with a bloodied iron bar beside him. Like the Mars and their shop boy James Gowan, Williamson's head was bashed in and his throat was slit to the bone, but Williamson possessed additional injuries that suggested he had put up more of a fight than the Mars. His right leg was fractured, perhaps from falling down the stairs, but he also had injuries to his hand. One thumb was nearly severed, and his hand was injured in such a way that it appeared as though the old man grabbed the weapon to protect himself and failed. Further down the stairs in the cellar was the servant, Bridget, her skull bashed and her throat cut. Her feet were sticking underneath the grate and she was lying on her back, as though she were laying a fire for the next morning when she was attacked. Mrs. Williamson was close by, but lay on her left side with some keys in a box by her. As with the others, she was beat over the head and had her throat cut from ear to ear. A small group of men armed with weapons on hand moved through the house, searching for the killers. Upstairs, still in her bedroom asleep, was the young girl Kitty, the Williamson's granddaughter. She hadn't heard a thing and was miraculously carried out to safety. The only other occupant of the property was John Turner, and he had already exited via the third-floor window. At the next coroner's inquest, he explained the ordeal. Turner explained that when Anderson entered the King's Arms, Bridget was in the process of raking out the fire. Turner was retiring to bed and saw Mrs. Williamson do the same, but then moments later heard her lock the door and go back downstairs. Only several minutes had passed when he heard a large banging sound coming from the front door, and then a moment later, screams, We shall be murdered! yelled again and again. Turner heard two or three loud thuds and then another voice. This time it was Mr. Williamson shouting, We shall be murdered! Turner lie in his bed paralyzed for two minutes before he got to his feet and tried to listen through the door. Hearing nothing, he crept out and down the stairs. From the landing, he heard heavy sighs and the sounds of someone walking across the room downstairs. Turner walked through the last set of stairs and then peered through the hallway door. The door was ajar, and by the light of the candle inside, he could see the figure of a man, his back turned towards him, bending over someone's body, but who it was he couldn't tell. The man moved as though he were taking something off of the body, and Turner heard the rattle of silver as if to confirm this. As the man stuck his hand into his coat pocket, Turner crept back upstairs to his bedroom as quietly as possible. Either Turner was so afraid that he completely forgot about the Williamson's granddaughter Kitty, or believed there was no time to get her and make it out alive, so he went back up to his room and tied his bed sheets together. There was no lock on his door. He was basically a sitting duck up there, so he tied the sheets to the bed and climbed out of the window, screaming murder for all to hear. Watchmen and volunteers scoured the area for the killers. The police had been out patrolling that night, but stopped for some food at 
the exact time of the murders, just across the street from the king's arms. What police there were searched nearby houses and boats, along with all passing carts and carriages. And then they closed the London Bridge. The victims inside the king's arms were washed and laid out in the back parlor, while the rest of the building was searched for clues. They found the killer's exit in the kitchen through a bloodied back window. Beneath the window was a high bank of clay that the killer would have had to scramble up. Beyond that was a small yard belonging to the Williamsons, and then beyond that was the wasteland belonging to the London Dock Company. Again, there were a lot of questions regarding the motive. It seemed as though the killer had made off with Williamson's watch, but nothing else was missing. Had the killer been interrupted by Turner dangling out of the window screaming, just as Margaret Jules banging on the door interrupted the killer at the Mar shop? Or was the killer simply not interested in money? And what connected the two killings, other than the fact that they were in the same neighborhood? The Mars were 24 and new to the area, but the Williamsons were older and much more established. The magistrates wrote to the Home Secretary for assistance amid the public's pressure to find the killers, particularly now that a second attack occurred. Clearly what happened to the Mars was not a one-time incident. There was a vicious killer on the loose in the streets of London, and it seemed to everyone that the government was not able to do a damn thing about it. People were angry and frightened. One shop boasted selling 300 rattles in less than 10 hours, and sales of firearms and other weapons skyrocketed. London barred their doors each night with a sense of panic they hadn't experienced before. One man, Mellish, had been shot in the face while going after the men he believed to be the Ratcliffe Highway murderers, but weren't. The police and the powers that be were doing their best, but still scrambling. They had few leads, and whatever suspects they got their hands on, they went after relentlessly until they were forced to let them go. They had nothing, and the people were angry. On Christmas Day, the London Chronicle called for police reform. They wrote, Is a man to retire with his family in tranquility to their repose, or are their beds to be haunted at night with images of midnight murderers and their hours of rest contaminated by dreams of blood? Notices were printed across London warning residents and calling them to convene and discuss how to protect themselves, since the government was unable to. One of them read, and I'm paraphrasing here, In these times, when murder stalks abroad with fury, when the late ferocious and horrid massacres plainly indicate that among us are monsters, when the list of robberies, daily announced from our police offices, are so numerous that they bid defiance to our laws, and when we find a coroner declaring, Our houses are no longer to be deemed our castles, we are imperiously called upon to be personally the guardians of our families and properties. 
Seven innocent people had been brutally murdered inside their home, where they ought to have been the safest. Any one of them could be next. All of London was hanging by a thread. On Christmas Eve, the police arrested their villain. The tip came from Mr. Vermillo, the landlord of a local tavern, the Pear Tree Inn. He was actually in Newgate Prison at the time because of some debts he owed and needed the reward money. He managed the Pear Tree Inn with his wife and hosted many sailors as lodgers, including a German man named John Peterson. Peterson went back to sea but asked the Vermillos to keep his tools for safekeeping while he was away. Vermillo recognized the Bloody Mall because he had seen it and used it at the Pear Tree Inn. It belonged to John Peterson, hence the initials J.P. punched into the face of it. In fact, Vermillo claims to have accidentally broken the tip of the mall himself while chopping some wood. Peterson's tools had apparently been left around the inn for anyone to use, which widened the pool of suspects. Luckily for the magistrates, the Vermillos had one lodger who was particularly suspicious and had connections to both Marr and the Williamsons. John Williams was a young sailor of 27 and probably from Scotland, though the papers like to claim he was Irish because Irish bashing was quite popular at the time. For a sailor, Williams was quite handsome and clean. He was a ladies' man and a dandy, but also had a fiery temper which landed him in frequent pub brawls. He knew Timothy Marr, and Williams was friends with Cornelius Hart, the carpenter who worked on Marr's shop windows. He was also a frequent visitor to the King's Arms and had even been there the night of the murders. Mrs. Williamson served him and, as James and Crichley explained, saw him more as friend than customer since she was fond enough to stop and pat him on the cheek when bringing him his drink the night she died. Honestly, his connections to the two killings were enough for everyone to want Williams off the streets, but there was not a lot of evidence to connect him to the killings otherwise. Williams never denied knowing Marr and the Williamsons and agreed that he was out late that night. He said he was out trying to find a surgeon for his leg and then got back home late and yelled at his roommate, telling him to blow out his candle and let him sleep. He was heard telling people he had no money, but when he was arrested, officers found two pawn tickets on him, along with 14 shillings in silver and a one-pound note. Nothing was said of the pawn ticket, so it was likely unimportant, but much was made of the fact that he suddenly had a bunch of money on him, despite the fact that said money could very well have come from him pawning some of his own items. Knowing the killer would have been bloody and dirty from the clay bank outside the King's Arms kitchen, the magistrates began looking into William's clothing. 
When Williams was taken to court, his laundress was called to testify to washing some bloody shirts of his. She recalled washing two of his shirts. One of them was, quote, bloody about the collar, like the mark of two fingers, end quote, and the other, like the first, was, quote, very much torn about the neck and breast, end quote. But Williams claimed it was due to some drunken altercations he had, not from murder, and the magistrates were inclined to agree, seeing as the blood on the shirts did not reflect how bloody the crime scene was, and the killer must have been. The laundress's 11-year-old nephew also recognized them all, as he and his brother often played with it while at the Pear Tree Inn. He said that it went missing about a month ago, or about a week before the first murders. A fellow lodger named John Cuthperson also testified, saying he awoke one morning to find his own stockings muddied and lying behind his chest. When he asked Williams if he knew what happened to them, he acted surprised that the stockings belonged to Cuthperson, and then went to go wash them off for him. And then there was the sailmaker John Harrison, who shared his room with Williams. Harrison had seen Williams in the company of Mars carpenter Cornelius Hart, and had talked with Williams about the Mars having a decent sum of money. Hart denied knowing Williams, but then later sent his wife into the Pear Tree Inn to ask if he had been arrested. Rumi Harrison said the morning after the murder at the King's Arms, he found muddy shoes under Williams' bed, which he showed to landlady Vermillo. But for John Williams, this was all easy to explain. He got into a bar fight and his clothes got all torn and bloodied. It was a common occurrence, as was muddy clothes on a sailor. But then there was the fantastic story told by the old widow Mrs. Orr. Just several days before the first murder at the Mar shop, she was awoken at 1.30 in the morning by a man breaking into her house. The scared lady asked who was there and got a reply saying, I am a robber but she recognized the voice as John Williams, whom she knew quite well, so she invited him in. Whether you are a robber or not, I will let you in, and I'm glad to see you, she said. Williams had a seat, and the two talked for about half an hour until the watchman passed by, calling the time. Williams got up, saying he wanted to have a drink with her, but asked her to go get it since he did not want to leave. She agreed and walked over to the Pear Tree Inn, but found it closed, so she walked back home where Williams began to ask about the layout of her home. Apparently, Mrs. Orr's house had an ideal view of the back of Mrs. Vermillo's at the Pear Tree Inn, being directly behind it. At some point, the watchman had notified Mrs. Orr that he found a chisel just outside her window and handed it to her. Williams walked out while the watchman was saying so, and then walked back into Mrs. Orr's home after the watchman had left. He picked up the chisel, turning to Mrs. Orr, saying, Damn my eyes! Where did you get this chisel? Orr said she kept the tool, and Mrs. Vermillo recognized it as matching the rest of John Peterson's that were left at the Pear Tree Inn. But Mrs. Orr insisted that Williams couldn't be the murderer, 
since he was so kind to her and her daughter. This was, after all, a time when a character witness went far in clearing or damning a suspect. Yet when the day came, the magistrates were interrupted by the news that Williams had killed himself in prison. He was found hanging cold and lifeless from an iron bar that ran across the ceiling of his cell, sands, shoes, and jacket. He had apparently used a handkerchief to do the deed. It was a shock to all, particularly those at the jail who had interacted with Williams just before, and agreed he had been in good spirits and totally unconcerned with the trial. There was little evidence against him, and he wasn't worried. He wasn't the first innocent man to be jailed for the murders, only to be let go. It had already happened on multiple occasions. But Williams likely did not know how badly the magistrates wanted the murderer to be him, and to put this whole tragedy behind them and get everyone off their backs. Nor did he realize how panicked the public had become, and how they raged for answers and security. And this was a society who took suicide very seriously, both as a sin and as a sign of guilt. Whatever doubts the populace may have had of Williams as a suspect mostly vanished when he killed himself. It was the ultimate sign of guilt. However angry the public was before Williams hanged himself, they were that much more angry afterwards. Williams had cheated them of the justice they deserved. As James and Crichley wrote, quote, It is society, not merely individuals, that has been outraged. It is society that must be appeased. End quote. Seven people were massacred inside their own homes, and the police had done nothing to protect them or avenge them. Thus, on New Year's Eve in 1811, John Williams' decaying corpse was placed onto a rolling platform and sent on a parade down Ratcliffe Highway. The corpse was four days old by this point, and Williams' forearms had since turned black from the elbows down. He still wore his prison garb, and his right leg still bore the iron cuff. To the left of his head they placed the maul, and to the right was the infamous chisel. Directly above his head was the iron crowbar, and above that, a sharpened stake. The body led the procession from the prison to the highway. It stopped once they reached Mars Linen Shop on 29 Ratcliffe Highway, as it would multiple times during the parade so that everyone could view and enjoy the show. When the cart came to a stop, though, it hit a bump and William's head rolled to the side. A spectator jumped up onto the platform to reposition William's head so that he gazed directly up at Mars' shop to reflect upon what he had done. Around 10,000 people joined in on the procession as they were led down Pear Tree Alley to where the killer had been a boarder and stolen his murder weapons, then to the King's Arms, where it made another ten-minute detour. One man was so affected by the sight that he mounted the cart to whip William's face several times. The final destination was the intersection of Cannon and Cable Streets. 
It was tradition to bury a criminal who committed suicide at an intersection to prevent their ghost from returning to the land of the living. The belief was that the intersection would confuse the returning soul and keep them stuck there. That is, if the stake through the heart hadn't already done the job. They lifted William's body and let it tumble into the pre-dug hole so that it was in the kneeling position, and then plunged a stake through his heart and covered his body back up with lime, then dirt, then paving stones. William's body remained there until 1886 when a gas company was digging in the area and found him. The owner of the corner pub, the Crown and Dolphin, allegedly kept the skull while criminologists studied the bones. But that's the last anyone heard of what happened to William's skeleton. Back to 1811, there were too many questions left over, like what weapon had been used to slit these poor people's throats? The coroner always said the weapon used on the victim's throats had to have been a razor, for the cuts were made cleanly and deeply. But still, this weapon was never located. The public remained unsatisfied. Almost as if on cue, the Times began reports of clues coming in, confirming William's guilt. The most zealous of these clue senders was none other than John Harrison, the sailmaker and John Williams' roomie at the Pear Tree Inn. Is it any coincidence that this man Harrison was also the same to claim for himself the highest payout of the reward offered? Harrison provided the Times with a story of his seeing John Williams with a ivory-handled French knife, also described as a clasp knife. Williams allegedly took a handkerchief from Harrison, and when Harrison asked for it back, he told Williams to go on ahead and stick his hands into his pocket and take it. When he did, he found the handkerchief, along with an ivory-handled and new French knife, about six inches long. Williams told Harrison he had bought it a day or two earlier, this being sometime in mid-December, though Harrison was writing into the Times in the first week of January in 1812. Harrison claimed he hadn't seen the knife since, and wondered what had came of it, particularly since he had searched John William's trunk and the pear tree inn to find it. We then learn from the Times that Harrison had known Williams for some time, as they both sailed on the Roxburgh Castle and knew of his bad character. John Harrison, meanwhile, was described as, quote, the very reverse of that of Williams. He seems deserving of some reward, end quote. And it was left at that. The magistrates then decided, finally, with the suspect dead, anti-vampired, and buried, to do a search of the Pear Tree Inn. You would have thought this would occur to them earlier, but no, it did not. They finally realized that perhaps they could locate Williamson's missing watch, or the infamous French knife, at the inn where all of their main suspects lodged and hung out. And... I can understand why they would want to put this off now that I mention it, 
because one of the first things they had to do was dig out the privy and see if the objects were inside. And yes, privy, meaning the toilet. The shitter, the old shit can, the doo-doo box was being dug out and sifted through, and they had some discoveries. The first was a pair of blue seaman's trousers, which had been shoved down to the back of the privy with, quote, the most evident marks of blood in every direction, end quote. Mrs. Vermillo examined these after they were cleaned up and said that she had seen them on many occasions, for all the sailors who came in from the East Indies wore them. But she said they were not from John Williams, though. He was a dandy and wouldn't be caught dead wearing such shabby clothes. John Harrison agreed that he had seen them around the Pear Tree Inn all the time, but couldn't say that he had ever seen Williams wearing them, though he might have had some that he didn't know of. They also discovered a pair of clasp scissors that were attached to a sewing case. Both Mrs. Vermillo and Margaret Jewell looked at the scissors and case and declared that they did not recognize them. The Pear Tree Inn itself was searched for about half an hour, until someone, we are given no names of who conducted the search or who made this crucial discovery, but someone was in a small closet that had some articles of clothing on the floor pushed to the back. When they moved, said clothes, they discovered a mouse hole with what looked like a piece of wood sticking out of it. It was a clasp knife, quote, dyed with blood, end quote, on the handle and the blade. It was the exact French knife described by Harrison. It wasn't the first nor the last clue that the sailmaker discovered. Quote, on Tuesday, Harrison, in searching some old clothes, found a blue jacket which he immediately recognized as part of William's apparel. End quote. Upon examining it, he found an inner pocket that was, quote, coagulated with blood. The paper concluded the pocket had been bloodied when William searched through Williamson's body and stole his watch, stuffing it into his jacket pocket and staining it with blood. Thus, the authorities washed their hands of the murders even while crossing their fingers that there wouldn't be a third attack. The killings had seized, and their big suspect was dead. The public was appeased with the discovery of crucial evidence pinning the crime on him. They hoped this would all be enough. But was it? It would take some time before this was complete, but the Ratcliffe Highway murders prompted a national demand for police reform. The killings had highlighted how woefully unprepared authorities were for such a crime, and how inadequate the present policing was. P.D. James and Crichley likened the experience of Londoners just after the Marr and Williamson murders to the psychological reactions Americans had to the assassinations of JFK and Martin Luther King Jr. 
In England, James and Crichley write, as in America many years later, men felt that a society which failed to prevent the commission of crimes so heinous must itself be rotten at the core. Hence, it was crucial that the magistrates and home secretary appear as though they had administered justice. The problem was that even as far as 300 miles away in Keswick, the English were obsessed with the recent killings and what it meant for the state of their country. One wrote, We in the country here are thinking and talking of nothing but the dreadful murders, which seem to bring a stigma, not merely on the police, but on the land we live in and even our human nature. No circumstances which did not concern myself ever disturbed me so much. I have never had so mingled a feeling of horror and indignation and astonishment, with a sense of insecurity too which no man in the state of society ever felt before, and a feeling that the national character is disgraced. These were strong words, but in truth the country was divided on the issue. The murders had shocked them all, but the English were proud of their justice system, and ever since the English Civil War ended in 1651, were fearful of tyranny. The English liked comparing themselves to the French, who may have had a better system of police, but had to violate the rights of their citizens to do so. While one part of the country may have been eager for security and police reform, the other part argued that it was more important to guard themselves against the horrors of a tyrannical government who sent men into the streets to police them at all times. As one Englishman wrote, they have an admirable police in Paris, but they pay for it dear enough. I had rather half a dozen throats should be cut in Ratcliffe Highway every three or four years than be subject to domiciliary visits, spies, and all the rest of Fouché's contrivances. Because of such disagreements, it would take time before the Metropolitan Police was established. But, in the meantime, the powers that be still needed to reassure the populace that the killer had been caught. It's just that the police had bungled the case so thoroughly it was hard not to be mad about it. They didn't bother to search the pear tree in until the suspect was dead, and didn't even think to clean up the bloody mall when they first got it to examine it for clues. Parishes failed to share information with each other and rarely coordinated with each other to get the job done. And then, in their interrogating, they had let many important suspects go because of weak alibis, or because the person in question was known to have a good reputation. Their main suspect, John Williams, was arrested on very slim grounds, namely that he knew the victims and was at the King's Arms on the night of the murder and came home late after the murder occurred. Let it not be forgotten that he was allegedly an Irishman and also suddenly had a lot of money, whereas before he had none. Londoners may have been a lot less educated then, but they were not stupid. Two plus two did not add up to five, and knowing the victims did not make someone a murderer. Sure, the rest of the evidence they managed to round up against him was quite damning, but there were whole parts of this mystery that were just off. 
things did not add up. Because, let's for a minute pretend as though John Williams was the murderer. Would he not make more of an effort to produce an alibi for himself? Why would he wait around until 1 a.m. to return to the Pear Tree Inn, and then yell at his roomie for it so that the roomie was sure to know he arrived at 1 a.m. after the murder? His room was only five minutes away from the king's arms, and if the murder was at 11, why did it take him so much longer to get home? Why go around showing off the new French knife he was about to use to slaughter seven people? Why keep said knife and all the bloody clothing that was found? All he had to do was throw the evidence into the Thames and he would be cleared. Nothing was ever made of the pawn tickets he had on him, nor the objects he pawned, nor was the money he had on him tied to the Mars or Williamson's. And, as P.D. James and Critchley point out, if he was the one to commit the murder, wouldn't he use the money he got from it to retrieve his shoes from the pawnbroker? But what of the story the widow Mrs. Orr told of William's breaking in? James and Critchley suggest that her story was either warped by someone else after the fact, or that she felt pressured to tell the story that she did. Mrs. Orr knew Williams and would have let him in if he knocked, which was exactly what she did when she allegedly saw him breaking in. Why would he bring attention to himself by breaking into a home that he could gain access to by knocking? And what's up with the chisel found outside her window? Orr explained that Williams asked her to go get them drinks from the King's Arms, now, if Williams was the one to accidentally leave his chisel there, why wouldn't he take the opportunity to grab it before someone else saw it? Which the watchman did, and handed it to Mrs. Orr, and Williams acted shocked when he saw it. And why would he need to ask about the layout of the Pear Tree Inn or of Mrs. Orr's home, when all he had to do was look out of the window to see it himself, it wasn't exactly some secret. And the French knife? James and Critchley think that Williams probably purchased it for himself and was showing it off to everyone because he was proud of it and not anticipating using it to slaughter two households. So why kill himself then? It's always possible that Williams was depressed or mentally ill and chose to end his life, but it's not possible to think that he killed himself because he believed he had no other way out to escape the gallows. The trial had not even been held yet by that point. There was plenty of time for things to unravel differently, and as we said, there was not that much evidence against him at the time of his death anyway. When the jailers discovered him, Williams looked as though he had struggled greatly during the hanging. And yet, during this great struggle, he did not reach up to the bar that held him or search with his feet for the furniture beside him. He was seen as hopeful before his death, saying he was sure he would get out of things all right. He could have been lying, and could have been an accomplice to the killer, and felt enough remorse about that fact to kill himself. But 
this did not seem right either. If he was guilty as an accomplice, all he had to do was turn King's evidence, make a deal and spill the tea against his accomplices, and he would walk free. And if Williams was guilty, he surely would have made a confession of his sins before killing himself. He had no reason to stay silent if he was guilty and intent on dying anyway. It seems like an Epstein suicide to me. You know, suicide. Jailers were notoriously underpaid and notoriously corrupt for the same reason. It's not impossible for someone to have bribed the jailer, who, by the way, did not attend the inquest and give his testimony because his doctor said he was in too poor health. And then there were reports from a nearby cell of hearing the sounds of shaking chains at around three in the morning, the night Williams killed himself. And why should only Williams' forearms have turned black when the rest of him appeared fine on the procession to his grave? Could it be that someone had been holding him by his arms? Leaving, said bruising. And what about John Turner, the lodger at the King's Arms who saw the killer bending over the body to take something? He knew John Williams, and said that the man he saw was not him. If Williams was involved at all, it must have been with at least one other man. Two men were spotted outside of the King's Arms the night of the killings, one of them big and tall, the other shorter and stout. Turner saw the tall man inside the pub bending over a victim, but that man was not John Williams, thus the tall man was not John Williams. But neither was Williams described as stout. Even Mrs. Vermillo was hesitant to say that John Williams had been the Ratcliffe Highway killer. She didn't want to ID them all as belonging to John Peterson at first, but... Likely, after a conversation with Mr. Vermillo, still in debtor's prison, she was reminded of the reward money at stake, and subsequently ID'd them. But she was upset that her husband brought Williams into the matter, saying, Good God, why does he say so? When they told Mrs. Vermillo that Williams had killed himself, her response was, Good God, I hope not. When asked why not, she replied, after some encouragement, that, quote, I should have been sorry if he was innocent that he should have suffered. End quote. On January 6th, the Times printed that Mrs. Vermillo was overheard saying that if the police paid as much attention to Mars Carpenter as her, they would have learned something. What was it that Mrs. Vermillo knew? She, landlady of the inn at the epicenter of this entire tragedy, and she was sorry for Williams. Truly, it was a very convenient death. We already know that if there was only one killer, it could not have been Williams, because Williams was not the man Turner spotted, and even if Williams were an accomplice, this still leaves at least one other person who would want Williams to keep his mouth shut. James and Kreitchley wrote, There must have been at least one man whose safety depended on Williams dying, 
and dying soon. In fact, the authors go on to say that it is virtually certain that more than one man was involved. More than one man had been seen outside of the Mars, as well as outside of the King's Arms, and there had been more than one set of footprints to follow out of the Mars' back door. And then there were the weapons. At the Mars, the killer had left behind the ripping chisel found clean on the counter, the maul found in the empty upstairs bedroom, and then whatever object had slit everyone's throats. Three weapons. For one man? And why were they discovered so far apart if they were not carried by different men? Sure, one man could have come in with all three, but it makes less sense given all the other clues we have. At the King's Arms, though, this is a different story. The bloody iron bar was located, and again, the razor or knife that slit the throats was not. The coroner was certain the weapon had to have been a razor since the wounds were so deep and clean, without any hacking or sawing, and yet the official weapon, per the authorities, was the French knife found at the Pear Tree Inn, and we are given to believe that this was just one particularly sharp knife. What makes more sense is that although there was likely more than one suspect at the Mars for the first attack, the second may have been done alone. Perhaps after the first attack, the other man or men decided to bow out, either from nerves or guilt or fear of being caught, or whatever, and the main killer continued the second job on his own. In John Turner's testimony, he described hearing one set of footprints that night, and given how tense the situation was, it's hard to believe he would miss hearing a second set of footsteps inside the home. Both attacks were vicious. The killer had no regard for the lives within, did not hesitate to slit the throat of an infant or bash in an old lady's skull. This was a killer without conscience, or what we today would call a psychopath. The brutality and speed of the attacks was just far too great. Both attacks were done quickly, within the span of 20 minutes. The killer was in and out, and in both cases the killer had entered through the front door. In the first instance, Mara left the front door unlocked when he went out to put up his shutters. In the second attack, the door was left open for Anderson, whom Williamson was expecting to return for more beer. Only Williamson had defense-type looking wounds on his hand, like he was trying to grab the blade. And only Williamson had been strong enough to fight off the tall man. But all the others were beaten and cut quickly, without warning. It's reasonable to believe that the killer had the weapon on him when he entered both times and struck immediately, and it would have been a he, not a she, because of the force required to perform such acts. In both attacks, the victims were killed the same. They were all bludgeoned and had their throats cut, and then afterward the killers escaped in the same direction, 
out to the wasteland belonging to the London Dock Company. P.D. James and Kreitchley put forth two suspects whom they believe fit the killer's description better. The first, and most obvious, is Cornelius Hart, the carpenter who worked on the Mar windows before the murder. He was the one who was lent the carpenter's ripping chisel that had gone missing, and reappeared just after the attack on the shop counter. Hart denied knowing John Williams, but then later sent his wife into the Pear Tree Inn to see if he had been arrested. Hart was at Mars' shop around nine that night, and then left. Is it possible that he brought the chisel with him when he came, and left it or his toolbox behind? Or perhaps he came back to the store at midnight to return said chisel, and this is when the attacks began. Hart did not lodge at the pear tree, but he frequented it enough to be a regular. Just as Williams and everyone else at the inn, Hart had access to John Peterson's tools. One of the magistrates investigating the case believed Hart to be the true killer. The magistrate wrote, To speak plainly, I have the strongest suspicion that he was privy to, and in some way or other assisting in the murder of the Mars family. He speculated that Hart used a brown leather tool bag, seen on him that evening, to sneak them all into Mars' shop for when the time came. The second suspect, the one that Kreitchley and James think better fits the description of the murderer, is a sailor by the name of William Ablass, also known as Long Billy. Do I want to guess at the origin of this nickname? It's unknown where William Ablass hailed from, but we know he was not a local of London. He was a sailor, and so was often around the Ratcliffe Highway, but he didn't come from there, and people didn't know anything about his past. We do know that he was on the ship Roxburg Castle, along with John Harrison, the lucky sailmaker, and John Williams, the now-dead Ratcliffe Highway killer. Apparently, a blast staged a mutiny on board the ship which failed, and he was punished for, but John Williams was seen as just being misled, so he went unpunished. Several people speculated that perhaps Ablas had a grudge against Williams for this, and from this mutiny we can also deduct that Ablas had a history of violence, which could be expected from whomever killed the Marr and Williamson households. Ablas had been back from sea about two months, which James and Kreitchley note was just enough time for him to have spent all his pay on drinking or gambling, or whatever, and then be looking for a new source of revenue. Ablas knew Williams and Hart and was familiar with the Pear Tree Inn, thus had access to the mall and all of John Peterson's other tools. He was also a large guy and fit the description of the tall man seen outside on the street. He was certainly strong enough to kill all the victims easily. Ablas was also described as lame, which is interesting because one report noted a man running away from the scene with a limp. And Ablas had a limp. On the night of the attack on the king's arms, 
Ablas had been there, drinking with John Williams, who had old Mrs. Williamson patting his cheek. Could it be that John Williams was simply the fall guy for Ablas or Hart? Ablas had the connections to the first attack too, seeing as he knew Timothy Marr. Ablas, Marr, and Hart all sailed together on the Dover Castle. Is it possible that Timothy Marr expected some of his old sailor friends to visit his shop that night? And, knowing these were bad characters, invented a chore to get Margaret Jewell out of the way? Marr knew who he was inviting in, but not that they would kill him. Was it a business deal gone south? Or was Ablas there to settle an old score, perhaps angry that his mutiny had gone awry? Did he blame Marr for this? We will never know. The magistrate investigating the case was forced to release Hart and Ablas, despite his hunch that Hart was the real killer. Ablas had an alibi, though this was only his wife, so it was not exactly foolproof. But the magistrate could find no solid evidence to connect either of the two to the killings. The authorities in charge already had their killer. He was dead and made an example of. They wanted the chaos of these murders behind them. They needed the public to feel safe again. So the investigation fizzled out, despite there being plenty who argued the real killer was still on the loose. And yet, there were no more attacks. For some, this was just more proof that Williams was their guy. But for others, this just meant that the murderer got smart and moved on before he was caught. There are other characters I wonder about. James Gowan, Mars' shopboy, was dismissed very early on in the investigation, since he was new to the area and didn't really know anyone. Investigators could not find any links between him and the murders, so they stopped following that lead, but the details of this were never fully explained. I also wonder about the women in this case, Mrs. Marr and Mrs. Williamson, even Marr's old maid Wilkie, Margaret Jewell, or the Williamson's 14-year-old granddaughter Kitty. Virtually nothing is said about these women, which is typical for the period, as it would be typical for investigators to overlook them. I'm not suggesting that these women committed the crimes themselves, but isn't it also possible that one of these women knew the murderers, or that the path to the killer could only be found through them? The fired maid was interrogated and investigated, but what of the rest of them? Women do have their secrets. Perhaps everyone was wrong this entire time and overlooked key aspects of this case because they did not take the women seriously or investigate them as thoroughly as they should. In the fired maid's case, all it took was her having a dramatic reaction to being accused and throwing a fit about it to convince the authorities that she was innocent. And what of John Harrison, the sailmaker who knew Williams, Ablas, Hart, and Marr? The lodger with access to the inn, the one who led authorities straight to the French knife in the mouse hole. The one who claimed a large portion of the reward for getting so many great clues for the investigation. Crichley and James are certain that he knew more, 
he very well might have been an accomplice to the crimes, even if he himself did not commit any violence. Though, it is possible that Harrison was just a dupe, that he was set up to find the clues he did, knowing he was eager for the reward money. And John Williams? Well, he was victim eight. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Rejoin us in three weeks for episode 45. And if you did like what you heard today, please leave us a rating or review on whichever platform you use. And don't forget to subscribe so you get the new episode as soon as it's out. For a complete list of our sources, please see the show notes or visit oldbloodpodcast.com. Be sure to check out our Instagram for images and documents relating to the case by searching for Old Blood Podcast. Music credits to Facillion Studios. I need one more.